Welcome to the External Medicine Podcast. My name is Daniel Belkin, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Mitch Belkin. We're both medical students interested in non-traditional ideas and innovation. This podcast is our attempt to explore topics currently on the outskirts of medicine, topics not widely accepted by the mainstream, but that we believe merit a closer look. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. We do not endorse any healthcare providers or treatments. Our views do not represent the views of any official organization or institution. If you'd like to support us, follow us on Twitter at exmedpod and sign up for our newsletter at externalmedicinepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. All right. Some quick announcements today. The External Medicine Podcast newsletter will no longer be every week. It will now be maybe like once a month. Every week was a little bit ambitious, considering that we are still in medical school, but we will continue to send out monthly essays and links and things like that. So Mitch, who are we interviewing today? Today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Deborah Kornstein. She is chief of the General Internal Medicine Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Her clinical work focuses on care to adult survivors of childhood and other high-risk cancers. As a researcher and educator of physicians in training, she is interested in improving the value of care while minimizing unnecessary and potentially harmful tests and treatments. This conversation was recorded on June 7th, 2021. In this interview, we talk with Dr. Deborah Kornstein about medical overuse and overdiagnosis. We discuss our April 2021 publication in JAMA, Internal Medicine, the accuracy of practitioner estimates of probability of diagnosis before and after testing, as well as the diagnostic process, the teachability of diagnostic reasoning, cognitive biases, and other topics. And now we're going to try something a little bit new. We read a number of Dr. Korenstein's articles, and we're going to just list a few factoids that we thought were interesting from those articles. Uh, the articles will be listed in the show notes if you want to go read them yourself. The articles we're referencing here are from JAMA Internal Medicine, an update on medical overuse, a review. This is from 2019. And there was another article called Overdiagnosis and Primary Care, Framing the Problem and Finding Solutions. And that was in the British Medical Journal. So our first factoid today is that urgent care centers are two to three times as likely to prescribe an antibiotic for viral URIs when compared with emergency departments and primary care doctors. Factoid number two. Supplemental oxygen therapy increases the risk of mortality in non-hypoxemic patients. So if you have a patient who has oxygenation of greater than 94%, you should not give them supplemental oxygen. All right. Next up, on 22 to 38% of common MRIs and CT scans, they find some sort of incidentaloma. And I guess the takeaway here is that doctors and patients should consider the very high likelihood of detecting something incidental on CT and MRI scans, and that these could increase patient anxiety and lead to additional testing or interventions that have unknown benefit and harm. Factoid number four, in the eight years after high-resolution CTA was introduced, 
the number of PEs doubled compared to the previous five years. However, there was no change in mortality. The takeaway then is just because you're finding more of something doesn't mean it's clinically relevant. And now we bring you Dr. Deborah Kornstein. We are here with Dr. Deborah Kornstein. Debbie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we begin, do you have any financial disclosures? I do not. Great. So we first became aware of your work. We read your, uh, your paper that came out in April in JAMA. Uh, and then we went back and we read a bunch of your other work. It's, uh, you've been very interested in overdiagnosis and medical overuse. Those are some of the topics that you've, you've written about a lot over the last few years. But before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit about your background and you know, how you got interested in these topics? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So I am a general internist, an academic general internist, and I spent much of my career as, as primarily an educator, a clinician educator. So I was involved in administration of the medicine, internal medicine residency program at Mount Sinai for many years. I was an associate program director there and also the program director for the primary care residency program. And my main kind of educational interest there, I mean, I did a bunch of things, but I, I really taught evidence-based medicine to really, I spent a lot of my time doing that. And it was really actually hugely rewarding. I loved doing that. And I, I did it for a long time. And I kind of got involved in the EBM mafia across the country at Society of General Internal Medicine, which is a big EBM place. And so, so I, was, I was involved in that. And I think that that really informs my approach and my interest in overuse a lot. I, I first, I have to say, I think the first time I got interested in overuse was right after my residence, my residency. So I did my residency in Boston. And at the time, you know, there are a few places in America that are a, a little bit le- a different culturally than other places medically, and a little bit, I think, less prone to overuse. And there are a lot of places on the West Coast that are like that, San Francisco, maybe probably Portland. Um, but Boston is also a place like that, that is a bit less prone to kind of aggressive care than some other places in the States. And so, you know, I was, tra- I trained in an environment where if you were going to do a test, you like had a reason for doing, for doing a test, which sounds logical, but um I came, and I think that's because actually back in the day in the 1980s, in the early days of HMOs, the Boston area had a bunch of early HMOs. And I think it it created this culture of, or I don't know, it's a chicken and egg situation, but there was a culture of just limiting oneself that I think is related to that. It's the early inculcation of H, of HMO culture. These were capitated HMOs where you didn't get paid by the procedure, but you got paid sort of to take care of the patient. Anyway, so I came to New York to Mount Sinai after my residency. And I vividly remember one of my first times precepting the residents and the residents were coming to me with like, well, you know, I'm seeing this patient, whatever, and I'm going to do like these six blood tests. And I'd be like, why are you doing that? Like, what, like, what? And it just began this sort of culture shock for me of just how much more stuff was being done. In, and, and I think it's a New York phenomenon. And, and I also think it's not just limited to New York. I think, I think the difference was probably Boston rather than New York. But I was always really keenly aware of all this stuff that was being done. And it always struck me as 
you know, wasteful and potentially harmful and also just dumb. Like the, the notion just intellectually that you're going to do something that had which you weren't going to act on and, and you were there was no particular reason to do it just drove me crazy kind of intellectually. And so it was always an interest of mine. And, and as I became involved in teaching evidence-based medicine, I also was really aware of teaching things like diagnostic reasoning, which is the idea that, you know, you have to do a diagnostic test because you have a question that's going to be answered by that test in some way. And so it all, it all kind of was intertwined for me in my interests. And even in the years before I was formally interested in overuse, I always, it was always something I thought a lot about. And I was, I really got involved in it more academically in in 2011, and we may have begun it in 2012, but we we published in early 20, I'm sorry, we may have begun it in 2010, but in early 2012, my colleague Salome Kehani and I, along with some other co-authors, published a systematic review of overuse in the medical literature. And it, co it was published in early 2012, which coincided with the launch of the Choosing Wisely campaign, which some of your listeners may be familiar with, which came out of the ABIM Foundation and was an effort to get doctors and patients to talk about unnecessary health care and some of the harms of that stuff. And really, it was framed as low value care more than, more than overuse, but it really is all the same stuff. And because we had just published this paper, I became involved in that initiative very early on. I became a consultant to the Choosing Wisely campaign. And I, it was really, it was a great opportunity for me and it, in large part due to luck of just the timing. But I got involved in the national conversation around these issues back when they started becoming a national conversation. And so that was, that was kind of how I got involved in the whole this whole field. But but EBM and and understanding how to think about diagnosis, how to think about benefits and harms of treatment is really the background that brings me to all of this work as well, really informs what I do. And this recent paper really is about kind of all of the above. So before we talk about your most recent paper, can you define, a lot of these terms can, they sound very similar and there seems to be a lot of overlap yeah. And the way people use them. So can you define overdiagnosis and also misdiagnosis for us? Sure. Yeah. There are a lot of terms that are all interrelated. Um, and I, I haven't used the term overdiagnosis, which was intentional. And I'll tell you why when I define it. But low value care, overuse, overdiagnosis. I feel like these terms are often used interchangeably and they really aren't necessarily interchangeable. So I'll start with overuse. So overuse is care, medical delivery of medical services, whether they're diagnostic tests or treatments or whatever um, procedures for which harms outweigh benefits. So that sounds very straightforward. Sometimes that is a for, for a particular patient that the harms outweigh the benefits because of a characteristic of that patient. Sometimes it's something that like for almost all patients, the harms outweigh the benefits, but overuse is basically the delivery of care that's, that's net, has net harm for patients. And people use the term low value care to basically mean the same thing. Um, I personally don't love the term low value care because I think the word value has this idea of cost baked in. 
And to me, cost is one of the harms that we should think about, but it isn't the only one. And I feel like when you talk about value, low value care, it turns off a lot of clinicians because it makes it seem like what you're talking about is just it's expensive care. And I think our job as doctors taking care of individual patients, you know, policy is different. But when you're taking care of an individual, an individual patient, our job is to provide the best care for that person. Um, and I feel like high out-of-pocket costs is a harm that you need to take into account. But the cost of society is like a little bit out of the conversation when you're speaking about an individual patient. So, but but basically, when people talk about low-value care and overuse, they're really they're really talking about the same thing. Overdiagnosis is a phenomenon. Oh, oh and let me just say, you know, when you're thinking about these things, it's important to realize that everything we do, whether it's a treatment or a diagnostic test has potential benefits, which we always think about, and potential harms. Um, and I also very intentionally use the word harms and not risks, because there's a sort of a risk for benefit. So this individual may or may not benefit, and there's a risk for harm. This individual may or may not be harmed by it. And so that's true of everything we do. And I think a lot of doctors don't think that way about things we do. I mean, I think we all tend to be cognizant of harms when we're talking about treatments like drugs. You know, we all know that drugs have side effects. They may have longer term complications. So we're all aware of that. And same with procedures. But diagnostic tests similarly all have potential harms. There might be, you might find out about things you never needed to know about. There might be direct harms from the test itself, like a CT scan with contrast. You know, there are potential toxicities of the contrast agents. But all everything we do has potential benefits and potential harms. And I think that's a really important structure to, to have in your mind when you're when you're a doctor, basically. So now, so that's so back to overdiagnosis. So overdiagnosis is the phenomenon where you make a quote unquote diagnosis, you label somebody of having a disease that will never cause them harm. So overdiagnosis is a consequence, for example, of screening. Whenever we do screening, we're looking for asymptomatic disease and we will always, it will always result in overdiagnosis. So we will always find some asymptomatic disease that's never going to harm the person. And that's, it's kind of a price we pay for also finding the disease that will harm them. So whenever we do cancer screening, Theoretically, if it's effective cancer screening, it's going to prevent some people from dying of cancer, which is why we're doing it. But it's also going to result in some overdiagnosis. And breast cancer is like the classic example of this. So whenever you do breast cancer screening, there is some overdiagnosis of, of less aggressive precancerous or early cancerous lesions that probably would never go on to impact the health of the person, but we find them when we screen. So overdiagnosis is it is not really overuse. It is a consequence of overuse, but it's also a consequence of um, appropriate use. And it's something we need to understand how to manage and how to, 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 to work to minimize the problems that result from it. But it really is a different entity than overuse of medical services. And people often conflate those terms. And I think it's really important not to, because I think it Misunderstanding those terms really colors people's ability to have an intelligent conversation about realistic impact of screening, for example. If you think overdiagnosis is equals to overuse, then when you talk about overdiagnosis from appropriate screening, you kind of have no way to talk about it. In terms of overdiagnosis, a little bit earlier, you mentioned how 
culturally, where you trained in Boston, there was a slightly different attitude as compared to in New York for ordering tests and answering specific questions. So I guess aside from that cultural difference, what are some of the other drivers that you think of as being behind overdiagnosis? You know, overdiagnosis, like I said, is a consequence of testing and particularly like any kind of screening test. So I think the important, I mean, I think there, there are two things that I'll answer. I'm going to answer a sort of tangential question to what you actually asked me, which is that there are a lot of drivers of overuse. So, so if you think about the tendency of people to do testing and treatments that have more harm than benefit, there are a lot of drivers of that. And there's a lot of evidence about that. And so those drivers, there are structural drivers like misaligned financial incentives, for example, like there are these, and it's, it's happening less because I think there's a little bit more awareness of this now than there used to be. But, you know, for example, doctors who have x-ray machines in their offices will do more x-rays, not surprisingly. They make money from them. They, th- they feel like, oh, the machine's here. We may as well just do it. So, so that leads to more overuse and it can lead to more overdiagnosis as well if people are doing all kinds of unnecessary tests. Um, there are people, when you ask doctors why, why there's overuse, they all cite malpractice concerns, but there's a lot of really interesting literature on malpractice that shows that when you do malpractice reform, it doesn't really address overuse. Um, it's percep- per- per- perception of malpractice risk does drive it. So people will do it defensively, but that that sense of having to order stuff defensively doesn't actually have any re- much relationship with what people's actual risk of um, getting sued is. And there are a lot of there are cultural factors, like you mentioned, that drive overuse and that are clearly associated. And also there are a lot of um, cognitive factors in physicians that drive overuse. And I mean, I've written about this some, and actually the study that we recently published, we have some other data from that same survey that we're writing up right now about correlates of more aggressive testing in doctors. So poor numeracy, for example, is a correlate of more aggressive testing among doctors, probably because we don't understand the way diagnostic tests function very well, which goes back to my EBM interest in kind of diagnostic reasoning. But there, poor numeracy is a driver. Um, more just sort of fear, like nervousness about uncertainty, about missing something. There are all kinds of just cognitive and per, almost personality factors that also drive people to be different in how much they utilize. I, I think in terms of overdiagnosis, it, it, the, the issue is not so much making those diagnoses, but it's about how you manage them. So it's about understanding that this is not necessarily an important thing to pursue. You don't necessarily need to do 27 more diagnostic tests, like finding ways to manage expected overdiagnosis of, you know, for example, incidental findings on imaging tests and do it in a way that, you know, minimizes the, the, har- the potential harm to patients from either more testing or even treatment of things that never needed to be treated. Hmm. I guess this is a good segue into talking a little bit more in depth about the recent study that um, that you were a co-author on. Can you describe that study and some of the findings? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the, the thing that drove this study really was trying to get under the hood of, of diagnostic reasoning. So thinking, okay, we have doctors doing unnecessary tests, you know, for diagnosis. And the question was, why? Is it because 
they, uh, they're misunderstanding how likely a patient is to have the disease? Is it because they don't understand how accurate the test is? Um, and, and I just want to back up because I know some of your audience are medical students who may not have thought this through or, or anybody who may not have thought it, about it in this way. But I want to kind of start by walking you through the diagnostic process. So I think we all intuit this. We learn it in medical school, but I don't think you learn it quite this way in medical school. And you can tell me if I'm wrong these days. So the diagnostic process begins with figuring out how likely a person is to have a diagnosis. So when somebody walks into the office, you know, you assess their symptoms and basically every question you ask them and every, every part of the physical exam is itself a little mini diagnostic test that's like adjusting your how likely you think the person is to have a disease. So if somebody comes in complaining of shortness of breath, you'll start asking them, how long has it been going on? Do you have edema? Do you have a cough? Do you, are you wheezing? Like, and every one of those questions is like, you know, kind of modulating how likely you think all these different diagnoses are in your head, right? So we all do that intuitively. We don't think of that as doing, you know, 15 different little diagnostic tests, but that's basic, that's kind of what we are doing. We then do a physical exam and we kind of, you know, modulate a little bit further based on what we find on physical exam. And then we're left with kind of thinking about our differential diagnosis, right? So we, we have a person in front of us who, you know, may have asthma, may have heart failure, whatever, may have COPD. Um, and then we decide what diagnostic tests we're going to do. And in order to do that, we need to have knowledge of how likely, and then, and then ultimately we're going to interpret the results of that diagnostic test in the context of how likely the person is to have disease. And so no diagnostic test is ever perfect. There's no test that gives you a yes, no, that's black and white or very, very few. An HIV test is one of the few, actually. There are a few such tests that are so good that regardless of what the pretest probability is, if that test comes back positive, if, if, if you know, a nun walks into the clinic and you think there is no way this person has HIV and then you do an HIV test and she has <laughs> HIV, she, she pretty much has HIV. You know, the, um, it's not 100%, but it's pretty close. And there are a couple of tests like that. But most of the time, you have to interpret the test in the context of the pretest probability. And we do that all the time without thinking about it. So let me give you an example. So let's say um, a patient comes in and they have fever and pleuritic chest pain and acute cough for the last couple of days and they're coughing up green sputum and you examine them and they have focal abnormalities on their lung exam. So they're like, they have, you know, whatever, rals and like a little bit of wheezing and egophony like in the right mid-lung zone. You know that person has pneumonia. There's, you don't need a diagnostic test to tell you that person has pneumonia. The likelihood based on your history and physical is very, very high. So if you then did a chest X-ray anyway, which I would argue you didn't need to do because you knew the, you might do it like to see, do they have worse pneumonia than I thought? But you basically didn't need it as a diagnostic test. But let's say you do it anyway, do a chest X-ray and the chest X-ray doesn't show anything. You still are going to think that person has pneumonia because you knew the person had pneumonia before you did the chest X-ray. So we always, so we do this intuitively. We, we, you know, and I can give you an example in the other direction. Let's say patients admitted to the hospital and they're getting, they're getting blood work every morning for no good reason, which happens in every hospital in the, in America, at least probably in the world. And they never, get, never seen that, never seen that. Yeah, of course. So they get a CBC because for no, literally no reason, they just got a CBC because they're a human body sitting in a bed in a hospital. So they get a CBC and all of a sudden their hemoglobin dropped from 11 to seven and they're sitting there smiling at you. They're fine. You know, 
you're going to immediately, everybody, everybody in the hospital is going to say, oh, this is a lab error. Something's wrong. We're going to repeat the test. Again, like, you know that that test is wrong because of your pretest probability for acute anemia is so low that you know it's wrong. And so you don't believe it. So we all interpret tests every day in the context of our pretest probability. We just don't, we just don't necessarily think of it that way. Okay. So the t- so what we tried to do in this study is we used a survey using vignettes and we surveyed internal medicine clinicians or primary care clinicians. Some were family medicine, some were internal medicine, some were residents, some were um, attendings, and some were actually NPs and PAs who practice, you know, as primary care clinicians. And we gave them these vignettes and we asked them to go through every step of the diagnostic process to watch how they interpret diagnostic test results and to see like where the errors occur. So we start by asking them, you know, what's your pretest probability? We ask them about the accuracy of a test. And then we ask them to interpret a positive and a negative test to see, you know, where might they be going wrong? And so what we found is that the clinicians pretty much all grossly overestimated the pretest probability of disease in these different vignettes. And they also overestimated the result, you know, how likely the patients were to have disease after a positive result and after a negative result. So like they just consistently overestimated the likelihood of disease. One of the interesting things was that we we did this thing called imputed likelihood ratios where we looked at their their pretest probability and then their post-test probability after a positive test. And we looked at what does that imply about the accuracy, their their um, perceived accuracy of the test by looking at, you know, how far did a positive test move them from, a, you know, from 50% to 80% chance of disease, whatever. And we found that they were not necessarily all that far off in their, in how far that in the test, how far the test moved them. But they were starting off so wrong that their interpretation ended up kind of being wrong for that reason. And the other thing we found that was quite interesting was the spread of like what different people said in terms of their, these probabilities was all over the map. I mean, in some cases it literally spanned from zero to 100% among our participants. So like we had people saying 0% chance and people saying 100% chance and everything in between. And we would expect some spread, like these are subjective things, obviously. And, and we created the, the vignettes to be a little bit, a little bit vague intentionally, just to kind of see where people would land. But the, the amount of spread was huge. And so what we, what we concluded is that, you know, doctors are, or I shouldn't say doctors, cause it was doctors and, and others. Um, clinicians are not great at guessing pretest probability they're not great at interpreting the probability after positive and negative test results either. But the problem isn't totally that they don't, it, the problem isn't even primarily that they don't understand test performance. It's that these other things are all just so off. And that, that, that's a tricky thing to address because understanding pretest probability is really tr- difficult. Like, and there's very little evidence to inform those kinds of decisions. So, you know, like what I told that, that case of the pneumonia that I told you about, there's very little evidence to say whether that patient I described has a 50% chance of having pneumonia or an 85% chance of having pneumonia. It's high enough that you're going to treat, but it's, it's very hard. There are not a lot of numbers associated with that. I just want to clarify on the determination of the likely estimates. So you're comparing 
an individual's ability to say, okay, their pretest probability of this diagnosis is 20%. And you're saying, well, actually, with this clinical vignette, based off of the best available evidence, the likelihood that this patient has pneumonia is between, you know, 10 and 15%. How did you come up with those actual values? So we picked vignettes in the literature where there was some data out there on like what the what the truth really was for vignettes like this. And we so we went to the the evidence, you know, different studies in different in the different vignette for the different vignettes, but we came up with a range of probabilities based on the literature. And we had an expert panel that vetted it all. And, you know, so we, we ended up coming up and we didn't, we didn't pick a specific number just because there was some vagueness. We picked, a, we picked a range. Some of them were pretty easy to determine. Like we had, for example, a low risk patient coming in for a screening mammogram. And then the likelihood of disease is really just the prevalence in that age group in the population, right? So like that one was pretty easy because it wasn't driven by symptoms. You know, other ones were, were a little bit more difficult to ascertain, but we still were able to go to the literature to figure out what the pretest probability should, you know, should be. The, the, just the chance that a person coming in with that presentation has the disease that we're asking about. And just about the, uh, the mammogram vignette, so when the physicians then gave their assessment and you said, oh, okay, the, the mammogram came back, did you say the mammogram came back positive or did you actually include an actual like statement by the radiologist of, because there are those different um, levels. We, we did not do that. And that was a criticism from reviewers when we submitted the paper. Uh, you know, the problem was it just gets very complicated very quickly. And so we, it, it was, what we were trying to do was, um, almost a little bit impressionistic. So it, it was a tricky study to design, but we did not. We just said, you know, the 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 mammogram comes back, you know, with a read abnormal. What do you think the likelihood is of disease? Um, or the mammogram comes back negative. So we didn't get into those like subtle differences. Yeah. And just to give listeners uh, a taste of some of these percentages, because I thought that they were really interesting. Um, so for the breast cancer, chances of breast cancer after positive mammogram, the answer or the median answer, average answer given by the clinicians was 50% likelihood that this person had breast cancer, but the evidence-based medicine uh, range was three to 9%. And another one for pneumonia after a positive chest X-ray, the EBM answer is somewhere between 46 and 65%. The answer that the clinicians gave was 95%. And just out of curiosity, because I wasn't sure, I didn't go back and see exactly how they determined 46 to 65%, but in that like evidence-based review of the literature, did they, were those studies, like they actually did like bronchial lavages or something and determine that the, per like, how did they find out that the person had pneumonia 46 to 65% of the time? Yeah, no, we, the way we did it was, okay, so we used the evidence to determine the pretest probability. So how likely was somebody with that presentation to have pneumonia? And then we used the performance characteristics of a chest x-ray to come up with a post-test probability. So we said, like, if it has a sensitivity of, you know, this and a specificity of that, then a positive test will result in this change in likelihood up to 46 to 65%. So we did a calculation to figure out what that was based on the you know the pretest probability from the literature and the accuracy of the test from the literature. A chest X-ray is a notoriously actually terrible test. 
So, you know, it has very, and so is a stress test, which is one of the other ones we gave. And, and mammogram's not that great either. So we use tests that are not like super accurate, but, but for which the performance characteristics, meaning sensitivity and specificity are pretty clear in the literature. And so we were able to calculate what a positive test would mean, would imply for that, for the, like, for the number, for that likelihood. And I just want to say for the record, like, I don't think that it's, it's particularly important that doctors have like the correct number in their head because none of us have these numbers in our heads ever when we're practicing clinical medicine. I mean, I do this and I don't, I have some of these, a couple of these numbers in my head, but not very many of them. We, you know, we, we use gestalt. So to me, the most important thing is for doctors to have the right gestalt about how to interpret a test and to be aware that you need to interpret that test in the context of the pretest probability and not just to say that, oh, this test is abnormal. Therefore the person has this thing. So it's, you know, the way we tried to get at it was by assigning numbers to everything, but the numbers are not really the important part. It's the, the you know, the error and the, and the way people act on these results is really, I think, what is important and the take home, the take home message, because no, nobody's ever going to know these numbers by heart, nor should they. It's just not realistic. So one, one of the possible I don't know if implications is the right term or not, but but one way I could take the this study is not only are doctors particularly bad at assigning pre and post test probabilities, but if there were a website I could go to and say, okay, this patient is positive for edema, um, they're positive for these other characteristics, um, given the base rate in the population and the sensitivity and specificity of my specific tests here is the actual likelihood of this patient having whatever this disease is. So I guess, uh, have you thought about this in terms of the AI implications or how clinicians could be surpassed by machine learning algorithms? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because we're actually, as part of this project, we actually are creating that exact website. The problem is there are infinitely many diseases that you'd want included. And the evidence to support those adjustments in the numbers is really poor. So we're, we're trying to, we're developing it and we're finding that, um, like, like here's an example. One of the diseases in our, in the website that we're designing is celiac disease. And so you learn, you know, of all these signs and symptoms of celiac disease, like growth retardation in children, you know, signs of malabsorption, LFT abnormalities, like there's all these different things. But, and, and there are all these, there's a lot of studies showing that there's an association, for example, with celiac disease, but there are almost, there are basically none that tell you that if a person comes in with this symptom, what's the likelihood or how much does that increase their chance of having celiac disease, which is what we need to know to actually design the math of the website, you know, behind the, those calculations, Th that evidence does not exist for, it exists for very, very few clinical situations. So I think that AI is st still would have a way to go. I mean, we're not trying to actually create AI. We're just trying to create a website that people could go to, to get some answers and maybe not even for use during in real time during clinical interactions, but maybe for afterward to kind of recalibrate your thinking and, you know, as more of a reflective exercise potentially, but we just don't have the evidence to drive it right now for AI. I mean, I think a learning sort of a learning AI system 
that would take like a million cases over time and and learn would be the way that that would go. And but you know efforts to do that have been really disappointing. So IBM Watson, you know, was the sort of effort to to do that and it just didn't work particularly well. Um and it was it turned out to be really cumbersome. So I don't I don't think um clinicians are going to be extinct quite yet. <laughs> Um, but it is, it is a really interesting, but I think it's, it's difficult to think about how to train doctors to do this better because at the end of the day, if are not doing this well, is not good for patients. You know, we're, we're subjecting patients to, to treatments they don't need to further testing. They may not need. And we, we may be missing what's really going on, you know, because, because our judgment is, is off. So I think it's something we should be looking to improve and I'm not, I don't think there's an easy answer through AI, although I suspect that in the future, there'll be more of a role for, for AI. Have you read uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow? Yes. In one of the chapters of that, it talks about a scenario where there are all these cabs in the city and 85% of them are blue or, or green and 15% of them are blue. And there's uh, someone who's, basically it's a scenario where you have a certain percent likelihood, pretest probability of something being blue or green. And you have a test, which is 80% accurate in determining the color of this cab. And, you know, knowing all this information and being really interested in this stuff, I like tried to do the calculation. And then he eventually gives the answer of, of how likely it is. And even with that information, like it's difficult to get the calculation to work out. Yeah. And, um, I guess my question is, what are what do you think are some of the biggest cognitive biases that stand in the way of physicians being able to do this better? And what are some ways that we could improve their ability to do? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think in terms of the calculation, the reason it's so difficult is because it involves odds. You can't just do like it involves odds and not rates of things. And I think you know, gamblers think in terms of odds, but I don't think the rest of us, and I don't know if you guys are gamblers, but I am not a gambler. Um, you know, non-gamblers don't think in odds. And so when you actually do the calculations, you need to go through odds. So it's like a nightmare, but anyway, yeah. So I, I think that that book is, is really, really interesting. And so I think there are, there, I mean, and there's a whole literature about this in medicine is which, what cognitive biases are, are really present. So one is, the bias related to what you've seen recently. So I'm sure you have totally heard doctors do this. You know, oh, this patient has whatever. I just saw a case of this person who did horribly and, you know, was septic from whatever. So I'm, you know, and the person's like really worried about that. So that's a, a recency bias um, a, and sort of a recall bias. And that's really prevalent in medicine. And it's, and I don't mean to criticize for this. This is human nature. Like we all do this. Like I think about this stuff all the time and I do it myself and I have to try to hold myself back from, you know, being super worried about these things. And it, it's interesting. I think the COVID pandemic really brought some of these cognitive biases to the fore based on, and different individuals reacted really differently to the risk of COVID in terms of what they were comfortable doing in their own lives. And I think to me, it just kind of made the point of how varied we are in the way we, you know, kind of cognitively approach risk. So, so that's a huge bias in medicine. Um, there's, there's also, there's like an attribution bias where you, you sort of think that something is because of something that it isn't actually related to. 
which I think colors medicine. And I also, I mean, I, th I think there are more cognitive tendencies than the actual formal biases that, Con that Kahneman talks about that are at play with these, with these judgment calls, which really has to do with, the, with fear. And I think physicians really are afraid of missing things. We're really afraid of errors of omission rather than commission. And there's this sense in medicine, I think, that more is better. You know, like, why would we not do this thing? I think, because I think it's very hard for us to see the harms, particularly of a diagnostic test. So, so I have this example that I always use in talks, this, which is a true case. So there's this woman who was like a relative of a friend of mine. I mean, I didn't take care of her and I don't even know where she got her care, but this is several years ago. She was like 70 years old at the time that this happened. And she had been a, a really light smoker many, many years earlier. She hadn't smoked in years and years. She went to see her internist who decided to do a, a chest X-ray, presumably to screen for lung cancer. Like it wasn't clear to me why the doctor was doing the chest X-ray, but this, she had no complaints at the time. So he does a chest X-ray. She has a nodule on the chest X-ray. He does a CT scan, which shows the same nodule. It's like a 1.3 centimeter nodule. He says, you know, you might have cancer, like we need to pursue this, which at that point was true, was correct. She ends up getting a bronch and the bronch is like botched somehow. She doesn't really know how. And she ends up hoarse with like severe hoarseness that lasts months and months and was treated with first silence for two weeks. She wasn't allowed to talk at all. And then with like, you know, with rehabilitation for months and months. I mean, it was a, a big problem. She ends up with like a thoracotomy to take out this nodule because they can't make a diagnosis. It was crazy. It was actually, it was probably a thoracoscopy. It wasn't, this was all through her. So I was never entirely clear to me what happened. But anyway, she gets surgery to take out, to take out a, a, like a lobe of her lung. Turns out it's benign, but nobody sends it for micro. So then they start worrying that maybe this was TB, but she didn't have it tested for TB. And so she ended up like having to be isolated to rule out active TB after the fact. In the end, everything came back negative. Nobody ever made a diagnosis of what this was. She was left with horrendous hoarseness, but nobody like along the way, everything that happened along the way after the original inappropriate chest X-ray was largely appropriate. Stuff went wrong, but nobody ever would have attributed all that harm to the chest X-ray that she had in the office that day that she didn't need. And I think that's the challenge with overuse is it's really hard to figure out what harms stem from things that we do because they happen downstream, they happen later, they happen with other clinicians. So we never kind of know about it. And I think that's, that's a huge problem with trying to right size some of these issues is we just don't perceive the harms. That's, uh, I think, a point Kahneman brings up in his book is, I think he's like doing a collaboration with this other uh, psychologist named Klein because Klein is much more, do you do you remember what part of the story I'm talking about? I don't, you know, I read the book a couple of years ago and I don't remember it that well. Yeah, so him and this uh, other psychologist are, Kahneman is very skeptical of expertise. Klein is, uh, tells the story about the firefighters in the building and they sort of intuit before it happens that the building's going to collapse and they escape. And he writes about a lot of things like that. So they did some sort of collaboration and one of the, things that they came up with as being very necessary in order to in order for expertise to be 
useful in order to be able to train that system one thinking appropriately is feedback. Yeah. And so much of the time, which I think is what you're describing, the importance yeah. of knowing what things, you, decisions you make, what the outcome of decisions you make in the future are. Yeah, absolutely. And the other component in this, in the medical case is, you know, a lot of the important, the weight of that feedback comes from the emotion of the patient around it, you know? And so very often, even when as clinicians, when we get that feedback, because patients also perceive that more is better, they don't have negative emotions attached to it. So for example, you know, if you do a screening mammogram and there's a false positive, so you know, it gets read as abnormal, the person ends up getting a biopsy and it's nothing. They don't say, actually, that's a bad example because the, the screening mammogram is maybe indicated. But if if you do some test that was never indicated, there's a finding, there's a biopsy, it turns out to be nothing. The patient's emotion around that is not, why did you make me do this test I never needed? It's, thank God there's nothing wrong with me. It's like relief, feeling like, oh, you know, um, that was a close one. And there's appreciation, which is in a way perverse, but I don't think and nobody perceives the situation that way. And so even when you get feedback and know what the result of your action was, it's not I don't think it's processed in a way that helps you, you know, not do the same thing next time. I feel like patients, patients often perceive that if a doctor did a lot of stuff, that means they are concerned and caring and attentive, which is sometimes true, but sometimes not, you know, sometimes it isn't the right thing. A lot of that has to do with how the, you know, how the clinician communicates with the patient about all of these different things, which is not easy. And, you know, like most things in medicine, it's the key to doing it right is how you communicate it. But it, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky stuff. Out of the, the uh, clinicians in the April JAMA study, the accuracy of practitioner estimates of probability and diagnosis, did you find any, or did you look for any cohort of individuals who were who particularly attuned at identifying correctly the imputed likelihood ratio? I asked because of, um, are you familiar with uh, super forecasters, uh, Philip Tetlock's? No. Um, Philip Tetlock is a professor at Penn who's has done prediction markets to try to find individuals who are really good at predicting future events in the near term. Like, let's say, you know, by October 20th of this year, how many uh, nuclear tests will happen in mm. Korea, like very objectively determined values. And to, to find individuals who uh, are better at predicting that number as compared to, say, um, experts in the CIA or in the State Department. And he identifies certain characteristics about individuals that predisposes them to be better at probabilistic reasoning. And they just in general tend to be people who who are very good at system two thinking, you know, being able to co come up with a base rate and adjust from that base rate appropriately in either direction based on new information. Yeah, I mean, that's congruent with what we found. We have not fully, we, we're still analyzing other data from the study. It was a really, it was a big study and had a lot of different components. So we have not yet looked at correlates of accuracy in in terms of what was in this paper, in terms of pretest probability and, and those things. What we have done is we looked, we have another paper that I meant, I sort of mentioned before tangentially that we're in the process of writing that is more about 
self-described um, testing behavior. And basically, we so we looked at aggressiveness of testing. So at the end of the vignettes, we asked people, um, in what proportion of similar patients in your practice would you have done the test? And so what we found there, it, we actually looked at it the, the flip side of what you described, which is we looked at aggressive testing. And aggressive testing is associated with poor numeracy, which is exactly what you're describing. So it's an inability to do that um, probabilistic reasoning. So, so that was a very strong association. Interestingly, it was also associated quite strongly with recognition of uncertainty in medicine. And that's something I haven't mentioned before, but you know, what we do as clinicians, I think is manage uncertainty all day long. I mean, that's, we, we have to live with uncertainty. And I think that's, it's sometimes a bitter pill to swallow both for patients and clinicians, how much uncertainty there still is at the end of the day, no matter. And I think oftentimes testing is this attempt to reach certainty, even though we never will. And so agreement with the statement that there's a lot of uncertainty in medicine was associated with lower testing. So people who don't think there's as much uncertainty are constantly, you know, testing to try to resolve that uncertainty. Those were, those were actually the two um, biggest things that were predictive anyway, but we haven't looked at the specific question you asked quite yet. Do you think that those are more personality traits or do you feel like those are qualities that can be cultivated and changed with education? I mean, I think that's the million dollar question, to be honest, about all of this stuff is to what extent can you teach it? It's funny. I, I, my background is in math. I majored in math in college. I love math. I'm, I just, I'm a very like mathy thinker. So these, these things are very intuitive to me. Um, but having taught evidence-based medicine for years and diagnostic reasoning, most doctors are like biology people. And I mean, I, I taught really, really smart residents about this stuff for years. And most people just, there were large parts of this that they don't get. They just don't think mathematically. So I think to some extent it isn't teachable, but I think some of it is teachable. And I even think some of it is cultural. I mean, I think this idea that we can resolve uncertainty is, is cultural. And I mean, I think we can create environments for medical learning and teaching that in, embrace uncertainty and teach, you know, teach people how to communicate around it, how to kind of cope with it. So I think some of it is teachable and some of it maybe isn't, but I, I mean, I do think that there's some, I think we, we waste time, for example, treating like teaching, like statistics, you don't need to understand how to calculate like any of these statistical things that they teach in medical school, but you need to understand basic numeracy and what probability is. And, you know, there's so many basic things that I think we could focus on instead that would probably be more useful clinically. So I, I think it's a combination. When you say numeracy, what types of skills are you referring to? So there are a bunch of different validated tests of numeracy out there. We used actually the most simple one. And you know, a bunch of so there are a lot of studies out there showing that medical students and practicing physicians have terrible numeracy measured on a number of different scales. And I think you're, you know, that's like not super surprising. We actually chose to use the simplest numeracy test. And it asks things like, it asks you to translate a percentage into like a raw number. If 5% of a thousand people have something, how many people have it? It's like really that basic. So it really is just like understanding numbers and really basic things like percentages 
and proportions. It's totally nothing fancy. It's nothing like trying to calculate, like use likelihood ratio and, you know, trend, turn like pretest odds into post-test odds. It's, it's way, way simpler than that. So if numeracy is something that very probably it's unfair to single out medical students and doctors as not having it. I'm guessing that probably just people in general don't really have that. Oh, that. totally. But if that's something that's very difficult to change and you mentioned culture as something that we could potentially change as a society or as a, a society within society, what are some of your ideas as far as how we could change the culture for people to be more attuned to this, these biases and make fewer mistakes? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, let me address actually the first part of what you said too. So no, so number one, changing culture is probably, is really hard. It's really, really hard to change culture. Culture is just difficult. Um, I, I would say a lot of people agree with you that I think numeracy in general is poor, which is for sure true. And so a lot of people who write about this poor numeracy among clinicians have said like, oh, we need to change, you know, elementary school education. But like sitting here in the medical education land talking about changing elementary school education is sort of a waste of time. Obviously, it's going to have zero <laughs> impact. I do think that we can teach some basic numeracy skills, to be honest, if we did it the right way, instead of trying to teach much higher concepts that are more difficult to grasp. And so I think nobody ever really does grasp them. But that that's so that's an aside. I think the way to influence the culture is again really all around uncertainty and and fear and what our role is as doctors. So I mean nobody ever talked to me when I was a student or a resident about uncertainty and just the idea that a lot of being a doctor they teach you you know all this science as if there is certain, assuming that there is certainty involved in the practice of medicine. And then you know people talk about the art of medicine but I think we should explicitly talk about managing uncertainty and how important that is and how we need to embrace it. And strategies for managing uncertainty include things like following somebody over time. You know, if you're not sure what something is, you don't need to resolve that question in your mind right then. You can see what happens to them over the next two. I mean, if it's an outpatient month, if it's an inpatient day, you know, what, however long it is in whatever setting, I think there are strategies to manage uncertainty. There's also ways to communicate, you know, patients are also don't like uncertainty. And so I, but I think there are strategies to communicate about uncertainty that help patients cope with it as well. So for example, I very often will say to patients, I don't know what's wrong with you right now, but a lot of times in medicine, we don't know what's wrong. We just know what isn't wrong. So I've ruled out these three bad things that I thought and those, those are things that if they were there, we would need to address. So you don't have those. So that's really good news. And now what we can do is I think this is going to go away on its own, but we're going to wait and see what happens. So I'm going to see you back in whatever, in a month, and we're going to see how you are. And in the meantime, if you develop these four symptoms, I want you to call me right away because that's those are the things I'd be worried about. And those are the things patients want to know. They want to know, here are the bad things that aren't wrong with me. Um, I have an outlet, here's what I need to look out for because people often like have no idea what to worry about and what not to worry about. So I'll tell them like, these are the things to worry about. These are the things don't you don't need to worry about, you know, and we're gonna circle back and close the loop. And you know, I'm gonna be there with you through this process. And, and that works honestly like incredibly well for sort of managing people's uncertainty and you know, people who like want more tests, like, well, I need a PET scan. You know, I'll, I'll give them that whole, 
I'll explain that to them and then say, so I don't think there's anything to be gained by doing a PET scan right now. And it might show something that we don't want to know about. And so we're just going to wait. But, you know, again, these are the things that I'd be worried about that would make me do the PET scan sooner. So call me if any of those things happen and we'll do it. It's, it's very interesting that we started this discussion about overdiagnosis, talking about testing and mathematical or uh, reasoning. And now we're talking about doctors and patients' fears and uncertainties. And I guess I'm very curious because there's the changing what doctors are doing in individual interactions and changing either the guidelines at the institution level or at the level of organizations. And I guess, are there sorts of tools or changes to the rules at the organizational level that would turn a place in New York into a place more like where you where you were at in Boston during training? Or do you really think that individually educating physicians to be more comfortable with discussing fear and uncertainty with patients will lead to a sort of um, gradual change in the level of over-testing and subsequent over-diagnosis? I think you have to do both. I mean, I think what I was just describing was giving individual strategies for dealing with all of these problems, which, which I think would lead to, I think the kind of communication I just described will lead to less testing. And that's, and that's why I think it's relevant. At the same time, I think that we need to do things on a broader scale, like, you know, misaligned financial incentives are just crazy. Like we need to fix that. And so a lot of a lot of initiatives that were attached to the Affordable Care Act actually did address those things. And they've had they've I would say the results have been a little bit disappointing because now enough time's gone on that we've seen what the effect is which is part of why I'm emphasizing more of the cognitive things because I think the bigger picture reforms and same with malpractice reform in in areas in sort of small areas where there's been malpractice reform there's been frustratingly little effect on overuse. At the same time, we know that there are huge geographic variations in utilization rates, which are in large part, I think, cultural. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot that's been happening at the macro level that will help. So guidelines, for example, are more often recommending against certain things than they used to. It used to be that they just never included that kind of stuff. And now they are more including that stuff. They've also been more explicit and transparent about the benefits and harms of different approaches, which I think has been a welcome change in the last few years. So there are really macro things that are getting involved that are that are evolving. I think there are institutional things that can be done, not so much institutional guidelines, but more institutional feedback to doctors. So that's been effective in a variety of ways at right sizing. So, so both at limiting unnecessary care, but also optimizing, you know, maximizing necessary care. So doctors will get report cards of, you know, this is how many patients with hypertension in your practice have a, you know, blood pressure at goal or hemoglobin A1C for diabetics or whatever it is, or for like inpatient doctors, it'll be, you know, how many of your MI patients got aspirin? It's, it's, there's all kinds of stuff like that, that helps people. And, and some of those measures are for providing necessary care that's needed and some are for not providing, you know, things that aren't needed. So those kinds of very specific initiatives help for targeted services that you want to look at. But I think what I'm talking about, about communicating around these uncertainties will have a more holistic effect on 
because there's so many services that we can't target that there's so many decisions that happen in day-to-day clinical medicine that we don't even think about and that aren't that are hard to identify in the data, hard to give feedback about, even hard to understand why there are differences. So things like the lab tests that are done, like it's really hard to know, was there a reason for it? Was there no reason for it? And I think those things, learning about uncertainty and communicating better around uncertainty will help those things. So it's it's really a combination of everything. What do you think a physician or medical professional who's interested in lowering overuse can do in order to either learn more about this topic or improve their own decision-making about this? Um, I mean, I think one resource is Choosing Wisely. So they have a website that shows, so basically what Choosing Wisely was, is, it was an initiative hosted by ABIM Foundation where they invited professional societies to come up with lists of five things that doctors and patients should question and discuss, five kind of services. And so it, it doesn't mean that these things are never appropriate, but it means that they are sometimes used inappropriately, you know, overused. And they're meant to be topics for discussion. And so I think there's a lot in there that that is a good starting point for people who are interested. You can go to the society or societies of, and there are a couple hundred societies that have made recommendations now. It's, it's, it's really quite large. So if you're going to go into ophthalmology, like you're going into radiology, you mentioned, I think you can go to the radiology societies and look at what the, the services that they have highlighted. And there'll be a little description of why and sort of what the drivers are. And so, you know, you can get involved in, people can get involved in quality improvement initiatives to try to improve these things. You can start thinking about your own decision-making around them and decision-making of your colleagues. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, there's a lot that's been propagated through, particularly among medical students, about costs of care. And it's really important to think about the cost of the care we provide, particularly for patients who are often paying out of pocket. And, you know, drug costs are a huge problem. There's all kinds of problems related to cost. But this, to me, at the end of the day, is about providing the best care to patients that we can. And I think we all can agree that that's what we all want to do. I, I don't think any doctor does tests because they're greedy or stupid. I think doctors all think they're doing the right thing. And it's a matter of kind of elevating all of our games so that we're, we really can, you know, get past our own cognitive biases to do the right thing for patients all the time or as often as possible. Debbie, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us today. If people want to learn more about the work that you do, where would you have them go or what should resources should they plug into? I mean, again, I think the Choosing Wisely website is, um, is really helpful. The website that we're developing that's going to help guide people through the testing, the diagnostic process is called testingwisely.com, I think. Um, but I think if you just Google testing wisely, you'll come up with it. It has a really cool COVID calculator on there that takes into account local rates of COVID in real time when you're like thinking about, you know, how likely is somebody with a cough to have COVID, that kind of thing. So I would recommend that. And um, I mean, there are also a couple of journals that have series that have sort of collections of articles about these things. One is is JAMA Internal Medicine, where our recent paper was published, and the other is BMJ. 
they both have an interest in this. BMJ frames it in terms of overdiagnosis, but it, it really is about all kinds of overuse. So that's another place to go. And they each each of those journals, if you go to their website, has collections of articles about these things that you can go to. Excellent. Well, thank you once again. We really appreciate you taking time to be on the External Medicine Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. you'd like to support us, here are some ways you can help. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, preferably a phenomenal review. Visit us at externalmedicinepodcast.com and tell your friends. 